Vinny just uh, told me to follow that, and I can't, so I quit. Let's just go home now. <laughs> Good morning, church family. Uh, it is a privilege and an honor for me to be here this morning and have an opportunity to share with you. I appreciate Taylor inviting me to do so, but I do have to clear some things up. Uh, last week, Taylor took the opportunity to call me out and the media team uh, for what goes on here. Uh, I want to take the opportunity to praise our media team for what a wonderful job they do week in and week out. Starts with Nathan and Courtney, all the, the volunteer camera folks, uh, and Rebecca's taking my place in the back. You guys didn't know you were getting a two-for-one deal when you hired Nathan, but you did, and you're blessed for it. So I appreciate you guys, and I'm honored to be a part of what you do every Sunday morning. Let's go ahead and turn in your Bibles now to Judges 7. And as has been our custom, I'm going to go ahead and read the whole chapter. Judges 7, verse 1. Then Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps with the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man, to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. And he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east along, lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down, so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put jars into the hands of all of them and with empty jars and torches inside of them. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. 
So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beit Shittah towards Zerera, as far as the border of Abel Machela by Tabat. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beit Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beit Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeev. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeev they killed at the winepress of Zeev. Then they pursued Midian. And they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeev to Gideon across the Jordan. When Leah and I found out we were pregnant with our fourth child, we started talking about names. What were we going to name him? We wanted it to be a name that was significant because all of our other children had some significance attached to their names. So we started talking about the significance of our other kids. So Jonathan was our first and I always knew I wanted him to be a junior. I told Leah before we even got married, I wanted to pass on a family name. My middle name is Merrill. It's a family name. And so I wanted my firstborn son to be a junior. And Leah was cool with that. So Jonathan was our first child's name. Jonathan also is a Hebrew name that means the Lord gives, which we thought was very appropriate as well because we had had some issues trying to get pregnant in the beginning. So we thought it was very apt that Jonathan's name meant that he was a gift from God. Our second son, we decided to name him Samuel. Like Hannah, the prophet Samuel's mother, we had prayed for a child. We had prayed for family, and we truly felt like God had blessed us with that. It answered our prayers and heard us. And so we felt like Samuel would be a, a perfect name for our second son. When we found out we were pregnant with number three and that it was going to be a girl, Leah knew that she wanted her middle name to be Elizabeth. Leah's mother's middle name is Elizabeth, so she wanted her to have that connection. I thought it would be really cool if she had the middle name Elizabeth of her maternal grandmother. She could share my dad's initials. My dad's initials are R-E-P, and so we started thinking about our names for our daughter. What, was, what were some names we could do? Rachel, Rebecca, David Crosby ruined those for us. Reagan. We, we really loved the name Reagan, but we never really paid much attention to what it meant. Because the significance of her name to us was in her middle name and her initials, the attachment to our family. So as we're talking about our fourth child and what we want to name him, I start looking up trying to figure out what does the name Reagan mean? It means little ruler. Yeah. Some of you know my daughter. And that's why you're laughing. Even at three years old, she was very much a little ruler in our house. So I told Leah, we've got to make sure we get this right with this next one. You know, we can't spend the next 18 years with a Jacob walking around class to our heel. And so we decided on the name Gideon. We both really liked the name Gideon. I love the story of Gideon. 
But one of the reasons that I really love the story of Gideon is because it's not at all about how great a man Gideon was. In fact, it's quite the opposite, as we'll see. But it's a story about how God used a man for his purposes and to his glory. And that's what we want for our children, not just for our fourth child named Gideon, but for all of our children, that they will allow God to use them for his purposes and to his glory. As it turns out, the name Gideon comes from a Hebrew uh, root that also means to scatter, which may explain the state of his room most of the time. But nevertheless, you see, names are significant. And so when we come to Judges 7 and we're told that Jerubbaal rose early in the morning, there's something we need to catch here. Most likely your translations include something to the effect of, that is Gideon, included maybe even in parentheses. The Hebrew includes it much like a, a parenthetical reference, parenthetical note. Gideon had become known as Jerubal, it's a name he gained in the sixth chapter. It's a name that means let Baal contend. Gideon had torn down the altar of Baal, he'd built the altar of Yahweh, and Gideon's own father, Joash, says in chapter 6, verse 31, if Baal is a god, let him contend for himself. Many commentators believe that this is an indication that Joash is still a Baal worshiper and that he may very well have joined with the men of the town in calling his own son Jerubbaal. It's a name that's essentially a curse, calling on Baal to judge Gideon, to contend with him. Gideon's own people, perhaps even his own father, were calling on this false and foreign deity to exact divine justice. And we can be very tempted to breeze past this in chapter 7 because we want to get to the heart of the issue. But as we've been talking about the cycle of judges, the sin and oppression, repentance and deliverance, we see now exactly where the Israelites are. They're in a place where even one of their own can be called by the name of a false and foreign deity. That members of God's chosen people would be calling down Divine justice from this false god on one of their own tells us everything we know, need to know about the state of Israel at this time. Despite the continuous cycle of rebellion and the people doing what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, the Lord raised up Gideon to deliver them, to free them from the oppression of the Midianites. But Gideon isn't exactly a, a mighty fearless warrior when we first meet him. He's cowering in the wine press, hiding out from the Midianites. When God tells him that he's going to use him to deliver Israel from the Midianites, Gideon tests God twice. He'd been visited by the angel of the Lord, tested God twice, and still he's not fully convinced. Maybe you're like me, and you can completely relate to Gideon here. Maybe one of, you're one of those like me who needs to be spiritually smacked in the face from time to time to make sure you get it. I'd, I'd love to tell you that I boldly and willingly go whenever and wherever I feel God leading, but the truth of the matter is I'm much more of a fleece kind of guy than I'd like to admit. I think we all can relate to that. But even though God has called Gideon out to lead the army of Israel God also wants to make sure that he is the one who receives credit and glory for the victory. Not Gideon, not the people of Israel. 
And so now God puts Gideon to the test. It's a pretty remarkable turn. Gideon had tested God in chapter 6, and now God is going to put Gideon to the test. We're not told exactly how many soldiers he has with him to begin with, but when he lets all the fearful and trembling ones go, we're told that some 22,000 leave and 10,000 remain. Deuteronomy 20 details the way in which the Israelites were to approach war with their enemies. And verse 8 specifically says that the fearful and faint-hearted ones should be left out of the conflict, sent home, so as not to damage the morale or confidence of the rest of the troops. And so from a, stand, from a certain standpoint, you can, almost, you can almost understand letting the 22,000 go. And maybe Gideon got it. It's according to Torah. It's according to the instructions God has already given. And so maybe Gideon understands but still, it had to be pretty distressing to see some two-thirds of his army leaving. 10,000 soldiers is still no small fighting force. They were camped in an elevated position above the Midianites in the Jezreel Valley. And maybe, just maybe with 10,000, Gideon could still make this work. But 10,000 troops was still far too many for the Lord. With such a large fighting force, God knew that the temptation would be to credit Gideon for the victory or to credit the Israelites for the, the glory and the victory. And he wanted to make sure that he was the one who received credit and, vict and glory for the victory. And so he tells Gideon in verse 4, the people are still too many. And he leads him into an even greater reduction of forces until eventually there are 300 remaining 300 troops. We find out in verse 12 that the opposing forces of the Midianites and Malachites and all that were with them were like locusts in abundance and their camels were without number like the sand on the seashore. Can you even imagine Gideon's mindset? I'm sure he was probably a little concerned with 32,000 troops standing there looking out over the Midianites and now he's left with less than 1% of his original fighting force. These aren't just outstanding long odds. These are Pelicans winning the NBA Finals with no AD and before the number one draft pick odds. There's astronomical. More so, this isn't 300 trained Spartan hoplites in defensive positions at Thermopylae. This is 300 relatively inexperienced Israelites who were about to be sent on the offensive. And then there's Gideon. Immediately after the troops have been whittled down to the 300 that God's going to use to deliver Israel from the Midianites, Gideon is told to go to the outskirts of the camp and, and observe. Just, just go and listen, God says. And when you do, you will be strengthened. Your resolve will be strengthened. You'll be encouraged. But if you are afraid, it strikes me here, after everything that Gideon has witnessed from the Lord, after putting God to the test twice and God proving himself as if he really needed to do so, Gideon is still not convinced. Gideon still doesn't trust that the Lord will do what he says he will do. God says, if you are afraid to go down to the camp by yourself, take your servant Pura with you. Now, the verse doesn't tell us that Gideon was afraid, but the next thing we read is that Gideon's taking his servant Pura to the camp with him. 
the implication of Gideon's fear, his lack of faith in Yahweh God is obvious. And it's one of the reasons I find Gideon so relatable. When Gideon and Purah venture to the outskirts of the camp, they hear the dream of one of the Midianite soldiers. And the implication of the dream is that God is giving the Midianites into the hands of the Israelites, into the hand of Gideon. And Gideon hears this and he immediately falls on his face and worships. And it's the last time we see Gideon do that for the rest of his story. He comes back to the camp. He tells the Israelite army that the Lord has given the Midianites into their hands. And, and in this instance, we can almost see his pride beginning to swell up in him as he begins to see himself as the commander of this army rather than God. He sees that this will be Gideon's victory. It wasn't the sword of the Lord that the Midianites saw in the dream. It was the sword of Gideon. Verse 14 is not the only reference to a sword here, which is truly interesting when we look at just how the Israelites were equipped for battle. Look at verse 16. He put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jar. Where are the swords? Where are the weapons with which the Israelites were, were going to conquer the Midianites? How in the world could they possibly overcome this massive army with trumpets and torches? And that's exactly the point that God was trying to drive home. Not just for Gideon, not even just for the Israelites, but for the rest of the world. That the measure of his power and might is so great that his, his people need not even pick up weapons to overcome their enemies. And at times it seems like Gideon gets this. And at other times I see the same pride and arrogance in Gideon that I see in myself. In his commentary on Judges, Victor Matthews stated that the subsequent battle that follows in Judges 7 is almost an afterthought, which really kind of struck me. And I'll be honest with you, it changed the entire course of this sermon. What I thought I was going to preach changed when I realized that the battle, what we focus so much on in Judges 7, is really just an afterthought. Because when we look at the main human character, we look at Gideon, we see someone who struggles to trust God and remain faithful to him. And this is the point of the story. As he prepares these 300 Israelites for battle, Gideon emphasizes his own role while diminishing the role of the Lord. Look with me again at verses 17 and 18. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. In these two verses, we have six first-person pronouns, I and me. Six times Gideon referred to himself and his actions, his role in leading this Israelite army. The presence of Yahweh God is almost an afterthought at this point. The battle is no longer for the Lord himself, but for the Lord and for Gideon. Rather than this being simply the Lord's victory, it's going to be Gideon's. And with the command to shout for the Lord and for Gideon, Gideon has placed himself on equal footing with God and claims victory for himself. 
As I read through this story over and over again in preparation for this morning, this part just kept standing out to me. For the Lord and for Gideon. I've read this story, I've heard this story countless times throughout my life, and this part never really stuck out to me. I never really paid much attention to, to what was going on here. It never occurred to me that in this instance, Gideon was putting himself on equal footing with God. And it hit me because I am Gideon. And I think at some point in our lives, we're all Gideon. We have doubts and we struggle with trusting in God. And even when he quiets our doubts and guides our lives, provides us with the victory that we've been searching for, we have a tendency to minimize his role in all of that. We pat ourselves on the back and congratulate ourselves for our accomplishments without much regard to how God watched over us and guided us. In December of 2016, I graduated from the seminary with my PhD after lots of hard work and sacrifice, but it wasn't just my sacrifice that made that possible. It was Leah's sacrifice taking care of our children countless nights by herself while I was at the library or the office researching and writing. It was my children's sacrifice, giving up time to spend with daddy so he could go work on his paper. It was a rather short paper. <laughs> it was the sacrifice of my parents who were willing to help us out financially when times got tight. Don't get me wrong, I worked my tail off to complete that degree, to complete that dissertation. I spent many, many nights in the office until one, two, three o'clock in the morning trying to get it done. But if I stood up here this morning, and I'm sure Taylor would back me up on this, if I stood up here and told you that I did that all on my own by the sheer force of my will, my determination, my abilities, that would be a lie. There is no way on this earth that I could possibly have done that, completed that degree without the sacrifice of so many others. And I fully believe that God brought those people into my life, that all of those sacrifices, those words of encouragement, those professors who guided me along the way, all of those God brought into my life to get me to the point of graduation. Most notably, my major professor who suggested I narrow the scope of my topic so I could write a 200-page dissertation instead of a 600-page. Thank you, Dennis Cole. And there is no way on earth that 300 Israelites could possibly overcome this massive army of Midianites camped below them. Simply could not happen, except for some divine intervention. And divine intervention is exactly what the Israelites got. It's exactly what Gideon got. And it's not just some small intervention. Look again at verse 22. It tells us when the Israelites blew their trumpets, the Lord set the sword of each man against his comrade and against all the army. The writer of Judges is pretty explicit about who should be getting credit for the victory. It wasn't Gideon that confused the troops. It wasn't even the 300 blowing their trumpets. It was Yahweh God himself. And yet when the time comes for credit to be given, Gideon wants to make sure he gets his share. How often do we try to share credit with God? How often do we try to credit ourselves for events or circumstances in our lives that we know good and well really 
only, only credit belongs to God. How often do we assume in some way that we are on equal footing with God? Sure, I know God was with me during that difficult time in my life, but I probably could have made it through on my own. I know that God helped pave the way for me to complete a PhD, but I'm a pretty smart guy and I probably could have gotten there on my own, so I'm just going to go ahead and take credit for that one. Proverbs 16, 18 tells us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. As we finish up the story of Judges chapter 7, we see Gideon descending even further into unfaithfulness, trusting God less and less until eventually he's acting in outright disobedience. In verse 23, we're told that the men of Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh were called up to join the fight. These are the 9,700 troops that have been sent back to, the, to their tents, the, the rest of the 10,000, that God explicitly said, I don't want them, I want these 300, and now Gideon calls them back to join the fray. Verse 24, Gideon sends out messengers to rally more troops to continue the pursuit. Dan Block offered up this assessment. He says, but having achieved the divinely intended goal with the 300 core troops, Gideon appeared to forget the point of Yahweh's reduction of the troops. Instead of operating by faith and seeking guidance from God, he relied on human strength. When we convince ourselves of the lie that we don't need God, that we can achieve victory on our own, it can lead us down the road of outright disobedience. Gideon had so convinced himself of his own abilities, his own greatness even, that he no longer felt like he needed to follow God. God had whittled the Israelite army down to 300 men for the express purpose of demonstrating his power, his greatness, glorifying himself in Israel. But Gideon wanted so badly to glorify himself that he acted in outright disobedience of the God he once fought so passionately to defend. You see, I don't believe Gideon set out to disobey God. I believe that Gideon genuinely desired to serve God in the beginning of the story. Yes, as Dr. Brooks told us a few weeks ago when he preached on Genesis or Judges 6, I, I fully believe that Gideon was sinful when he tested God. And I believe that that shows us the cracks in Gideon's faith foundation from the beginning. But I think that by the time we get to Judges 7, Gideon is ready. He is willing to fight. This is a man who has earned the name Jerubbaal because he was willing to fight on behalf of Yahweh. But from the moment Gideon starts to believe that he could, would, and should receive some credit for this victory, and I think verse 14 is that very point. In fact, there's a major break in the Hebrew text after verse 14. From that moment on, Gideon started seeing himself as not only equally responsible, but equally capable as well. Gideon no longer needed Yahweh to fight this battle. The Israelites had their enemy on the run. They were calling out the 9,700 troops. They were sending men to call out more from all the surrounding tribes. And this was going to be Gideon's crowning achievement. And in the eyes of men, it was. 
chapter 8 concludes the story of Gideon's chasing down the army of the Midianites. And it's pretty clear from uh, chapter 8 that God really isn't even an, a, a thought at this point. <clears throat> He's been pushed so far to the background. And in chapter 8, verse 22, the men of Israel approach Gideon to rule over them, to establish a dynastic kingship like all the nations around them. Something we'll see eventually come to fruition in Saul. And they do this because they say, you have saved us from the hand of Midian. You, Gideon, you are our deliverer. What we really want here, what we really hope from Gideon is that he will correct this faulty assumption that he'll stand up and say, no, not I, not I, but the Lord is your deliverer. And yet that's not what we get. If you look in chapter 8, you see what we get is essentially the equivalent of the modern day God is in control. Gideon says, no, I'm not going to be your king. Yahweh will rule over you. Have you ever heard anyone say God is in control or God's got this? See those posts on social media and, and you know for some of those, some of those people, that is true and that is legit. Those people have genuinely surrendered control of their lives to God, but you know that for others, it's just talk. It's church speak, if you will. Because the thought of surrendering control of their own lives makes them sick, and there is no possible way that they could give it up. And their actions show that they don't really believe that God has much bearing on their day-to-day -day lives. I think that's where Gideon is by the end of his story. By the end of chasing down the Midianite armies, he's allowed himself to believe that he achieved victory for Israel that he deserves the credit. He's not even willing to correct the men when they call him their savior because he believes it. He believes that he deserves credit. Yes, God has his place and he's going to rule over all of Israel on the, the macro level, but in terms of this little area, this little, my little bubble of existence, this is all me. This is mine. I know my passage is Judges 7, so you have to forgive me for jumping into chapter 8, but nobody else is preaching on it. I'm not worried about stepping on anybody else's toes. But I don't believe that we can fully appreciate the story of Gideon without seeing the end of the story. What should have been an amazing life of triumph descends into a life of tragedy. As we get to the end of Gideon's story, we see he doesn't want to be king, but he does make one not-so-small request. All of the earrings from the spoils of war, which seems like a rather strange request until you realize that it's 1,700 shekels worth of gold, or about 43 pounds, about $800,000 worth of gold today. And what does Gideon choose to do with all of this gold? He builds an idol. And chapter 8, verse 27 tells us that all Israel poured after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. 
when Gideon started out, he was zealous for the Lord. He tore down the shrine of Baal on his father's property and he constructed an altar to Yahweh in its place. By the end of the story, he's back at that altar of Yahweh, turning it into a pagan shrine once again with an idol that he's created himself. I think Gideon started out with the best of intentions. Just like all of us, when we accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, Gideon recognized the necessity of divine intervention in his life and in the life of all of Israel. They were neither strong enough nor unified enough to overcome the Midianites on their own. And when we came to faith in Christ, it was because of our recognition that we were powerless to combat sin and its consequences by ourselves. We needed the ultimate divine, revel- divine intervention of Jesus Christ on the cross. Somewhere along the way, we lost that re- realization. We started to forget about our dependence on God. Maybe we started to believe that we weren't really powerless after all, and we didn't need to rely on God so much. Sure, God is in control of all the the big picture stuff, creation and, and salvation, but in terms of my little sphere of existence, I've got this. I'll take care of this. And when we start to forget about our need for God, our reliance on God, it gets easier and easier to start stepping outside the will of God. And if we continue down that path, for too long, we will eventually find ourselves in a place we don't even recognize. There's a reason that our faith in Christ cannot be reduced to a one-time decision, but is rather daily recommitting ourselves to following him, daily reminding ourselves of what compelled us to follow him in the first place, that we continually remind ourselves of our need for divine intervention in our lives, not that we have to see ourselves as weak and insignificant, but that we recognize that every ability, every opportunity, every talent that we have is a gift from the Lord. And that without, without him, we truly would be weak and insignificant. I think Gideon started to believe his own height. He started to believe that maybe he would bear some responsibility for what happened in the Jezreel Valley that day. And so rather than trusting in God, rather than relying on him for the victory and being obedient to his instructions, Gideon decided that he would take charge, that he would lead the Israelites to victory. When Gideon gets to the point where he no longer feels that Yahweh is necessary to securing victory, it makes it easier and easier for him to neglect Yahweh altogether until eventually he descends into idolatry. When we live our lives as though we don't need God, as though our commitment to Christ is simply a one-time decision that has no bearing on the rest of our lives, we run the risk of becoming idolaters as well. I don't imagine any of you have a 40-pound golden image. Uh, If you do, perhaps the sermon on stewardship would be in order. Um, but, But we all have idols in our lives. Our career, money, even familial relationships can be idols when they convince us that we no longer need to trust in God. We even set ourselves up as idols. 
Gideon idolized himself and his own ability to defeat the Midianites. And when we believe ourselves capable of handling all of life's circumstances and situations without the aid of our Creator and Savior, then we have assumed the role of Lord of our own lives. We have set ourselves up as idols in direct competition with the Lord of all the universe. When we believe our own hype and start to diminish the necessity of relying on God, it won't be too long before we find ourselves completely outside of his will, just like Gideon. And that's why we must be intentional about daily recommitting ourselves to follow after God wholeheartedly. Daily reminding ourselves of the truth of Scripture that Jesus shared with his disciples in John 15, 5. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Separated from Christ, pushing Jesus to the background of our lives rather than keeping him in the forefront, we can do nothing for God. We may achieve wealth and power, even some measure of notoriety on our own, just as Gideon did, but those things will ultimately become a snare to us, making it even more difficult to trust in God. And when we lose focus on things of eternity, when we focus only on the here and now and the things that we want for this uh, here on this earth, we lose sight of the impact that we ought to be making for the kingdom of God on this earth, we can do nothing that is of any consequence to God. Let us not believe our own hype. May we never believe that everything we have, everything we've accomplished is through our own force of will or determination. And we always focus on God as the giver of every good and perfect gift. And may we never forget that the one thing we could never accomplish on our own, our salvation from sin and death, Jesus Christ accomplished for us by willingly giving his life for ours. And let us daily recommit ourselves to the truth that apart from God, we can do nothing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the story of Gideon. We thank you for the man that you sought to use for your purposes. We thank you for the incredible display of your power. But Lord, we also thank you for the cautionary tale that is the life of Gideon. God, my prayer is that my pride would get out of the way, that I would allow you to work fully and completely in me. And that is my prayer for each and every person here that we would recognize that without you, apart from you, there is nothing in this world that we can do that is of any significance. So God, my prayer for each and every person here this morning is that we will leave this place ready and willing to serve you wholeheartedly, ready and willing to get out of the way, to push our pride and our arrogance to the side, trust in you, recognizing that you alone, you bring us victory. God, we pray all these things in the precious, holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.